My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. All the people want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you a little money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate, teach you. Call me, 1-800-743-CNBC. Tweet me at Jim Kramer. We hear it again and again. The economy is just too red hot. There's just way too much wage inflation. We have embedded inflation all over the place, and it has to be stopped. Which means the Fed... Well, it needs to keep raising rates aggressively. We're told by many of the Fed talking heads counterintuitively, nothing's changed with the economy since that mini banking crisis ended, even as lending has plummeted to levels that the Fed has never seen. So rates need to go even higher to stamp out both higher prices and higher wages. They often make it sound like the economy's a runaway train that's headed straight for the Weimar Republic, where even wheelbarrows weren't big enough to carry all the Deutsche Marks you needed to buy a loaf of bread. Yes, that's a massive exaggeration by me of their position. I know that. Still, the consumer's at the heart of the overpaying machine. That's what I've been thinking about lately. The overpaying machine that is the U.S. economy. And at some price, the consumer will, has to, must relent. There'll be a moment where the whole edifice collapses under its own weight and the big layoffs begin. We just aren't there yet. We should be, but we're not. Meanwhile, we haven't had any more bank failures, so the Fed is getting quite confident for us, even as it may be a bit of bravado or maybe a bit of obliviousness. Today, though, we saw two kinds of issues that have made it so difficult to get inflation under control that I was actually sympathetic with the Fed. And the action reflected that. Dow rallied 98 points as it began to flat. NASDAQ tech heavy declined 0.43%. Now, the first problem we saw today was right in front and center, didn't hear a word about it, that's wrong, used cars. These had been a real sore point for the Fed because they keep going higher in price. But early this year, they peaked and prices moved steadily lower for the rest of the year. Yet maybe that's just not enough. I want you to look at the stock of giant used car dealer CarMax. This was up nearly 10% today after a spectacular upside surprise, but just in earnings. Okay, keep that in mind, just earnings. CEO Bill Nash painted a grim picture at the beginning of the conference call this morning, and I'm going to quote here. The current challenges in the used car auto industry are well documented with affordability pressured by inflation, climbing interest rates, tightening lending standards, and prolonged low consumer confidence. And yeah, the average selling price for a used car declined by 9% per unit. It's roughly $2,700 a year over year. CarMax's t- total sales, get this, they're $5.7 million. They were down 26%. So far, so good when it comes to favoring the end of a tightening cycle, right? But then, because this company is so good at what it does, CarMax told us it made $0.44 cents per share. $0.44. Cents. The street was only looking for $0.20. Cents. The result, the stock catches fire. See, though, this is an unfortunately mixed picture. Great for the shareholder, lousy for the Fed. You got to hope the Fed will look at the fact that the used car prices were actually down big and not the fact that CarMax's stock soared, igniting an entire industry rally, which, by the way, the pin action pushed up by Lithium Motors, LAD, AutoNation, and then even the dreadful Carvana. 
Of course, the Fed's not necessarily looking to cause bankruptcies and layoffs, but their game plan doesn't really work unless businesses are actually getting hurt or succumbing to higher rates at some point like they usually do. So what's good for CarMax might not be good for the Federal Reserve. Even significant used car deflation isn't causing enough serious pain in this gigantic industry that is the used car business. And the Fed wants pain. If they're going to beat inflation, they need to see some marginal businesses go under. That's how it starts. Once they get enough firms to collapse, they've got a real chance to truly slow things down because of the mass unemployment that would occur if we had a collapse of major car dealers. But you know what? The opposite happened today. In fact, the most marginal player in the industry, Carvana, looks increasingly like it'll be able to stay afloat, something that many were counting on to implode and cause a lot of hefty layoffs. If you're the Fed, you don't just want lower used car places for, prices, for them's sake. You also want a number from CarMax that would be bad enough to shake out the weaker players and cause some layoffs and then lower inflation. The Fed didn't get it. Now, the strength of CarMax in this miraculous six-point rally can keep even a loser like Carvana alive, so there are no mass layoffs in this industry after today. By the way, even though pricing is still down substantially year-over-year, prices have been quietly climbing higher for the past three months, complicating matters even further. A job undone, at least when it comes to the poor Fed. Second problem for the Fed today, oh, my God, stock prices indicated everything. It was housing. These stocks were on fire. This is an industry that looked like it was finally being tamed by the Fed's relentless freight hikes. But the Fed's strategy here sowed the seeds of its own destruction. They raised rates so fast on the short end that the yield curve actually bent the wrong way. It's now easier to get a 30-year mortgage at a very low rate than it should be able to with with the short rates. The long rates are so cheap, and that's what mortgages are priced after. I'm sure the Fed was hoping that its rate hikes would also push long rates higher. But we now know that's failed, resulting in surprisingly low mortgage rates if you can get them. That's the exact opposite of what they want. Consequently, housing remains in very short supply as the builders simply can't put up enough homes to meet demand, but for a host of reasons, including municipal uh, rules. But the average price of a home has fallen. Eh, but 5G's from its top, that's enough to batter the Fed after this gigantic climb. Meanwhile, the lack of bankruptcies just doesn't sit well with them. Again, the Fed's trying to promote pain here to slow the economy, so, and, and you won't get true pain unless some business goes under. But that's just not happening here. The big auto dealers are well capitalized, as are the home builders. Look at D.R. Horton, Lennar, and Toll Brothers today. All stocks are pretty close to 52-week highs. They won't quit because they've got that down payment money. Besides, the buyers aren't going anywhere. A 6 or 7% mortgage isn't enough to defer, deter them, especially a surprising number of people who are paying cash. Don't even need a mortgage. Well, that's also very different from previous cycles. Retail's the same way. The marginal companies keep hanging on. Nobody folds. Do we need all these Kohl's locations? Of course not. Nordstrom, absolutely not. Gap, oh, please. Can't believe how many marginal players are still in the mall. While they seem to be offering endless sales, there always seems to be buyers. Only the lonely worm of Bed Bath & Beyond appears to be truly teetering. But it has so few stores left at this point that even a bankruptcy wouldn't move the needle to a decline in the economy. Housing, autos, 
retail. These groups are supposed to get hit the hardest when the Fed tightens. Sure, CarMax is making less money than they did a year ago, and the CEO gave you a lots of boilerplate negative language, but business is still too good, good enough for him to turn a big profit. In the end, there aren't enough cars or houses to go around, and that's not what anything the Fed can do about. Every house that is put, that is put up pretty much has a buyer already. The existing houses on the market usually end up with bidding wars, not depressing cuts in prices. Every used car that's sold is a reminder that new cars simply aren't ready to be sold because of supply chain issues still. And retail. These are supposed to be lean months. Nothing until Mother's Day. There's no holidays. But the analysts are getting more, not less, bullish about the group. That's not supposed to happen right now either. None of this stuff is supposed to happen. Now, some of these problems have nothing to do with the Fed. We've had supply chain issues since the pandemic, so we still don't have enough cars even two years later. By the way, housing was stuck in that, too. You, you want to break the back of inflation, you need to break the back of the auto and housing industries. Unfortunately, the Fed has failed in doing so, and it didn't even matter that a bunch of banks failed. It still didn't help the cause. So what happens now? Well, we can all sweat the program of the Consumer Price Index tomorrow, or we can mold the truth, which is that as long as there are so many people who have jobs and can afford new homes, as long as there are people who work and need cars for their commute, then this tightening process won't end unless we get another big, ugly bank failure. Without real layoffs from more industries, this vicious rate cycle will keep going as marginal institutions somehow stay afloat rather than going under, in part thanks to, yes, a bountiful stock market, as we saw today with CarMax taking the price up of the stock price of Carvana. Bottom line, even though actual used car prices were down big from last year, according to CarMax, and that's definitely what the Fed wants to see, it's not enough to actually hurt the used car industry, which is what the Fed really is aiming for. Same is true for housing where prices are holding up better. And of course, it's true for retail, where nobody ever seems to go under. I still think we've made a ton of progress in the fight against inflation, but I imagine Jay Powell's feeling mighty frustrated on day like today because he lost a big battle and he can't afford to lose the war. Let's go to John in Florida. John. Booyah, Jim. Wow, booyah, man. I go with Sorry, spit take there. Hey, What's up? With the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, all regional banks. Oh, just like John? Like Are you doing National water. Pet Day behind me? He's got National Pet Day going on behind me. I'm sorry. Go ahead, John. I was rude. What did you say? I said, with all the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, all regional banks seem to have been thrown out like baby with the bathwater. With all regions not equal, what do you think of an investment in the Southeast Regional Bank, specifically Truist? Okay, so let's understand what's going on with these banks. I know the stocks are down, but all that's really happened is that these stocks are now selling at same prices as money center banks. I think Truist, with a 6% yield, selling at a 6 PE is a reasonable buy, but no one wants to touch the financials because we think that they're going to report bad numbers. But of the financials, Truist, PNC, and Huntington Bank are the ones that most intrigue me. But I know better than to say, Bye, bye, bye. All right. I still do think that we're making a ton of progress in the fight against inflation. But a day like today, I imagine j feeling mighty frustrated. 
On Man Money tonight, we're continuing our series on persistent negativity by taking a look at five more Dow stocks and determining whether it's the negativity of investors weighing down the stocks or maybe there's something wrong with the underlying companies. We'll consider everything. Then tech spent uh, most of last year in the... But with the tech-heavy Nasdaq roaring back this year, is this it? Are we at the pivot? What could be next? I'm going off the charts to find out. And yes, it's National Pat Day. Pet, pet Day, Pat Day, Pat and Pet Day. So I'm checking in with a private player that wants to make it so that maybe when your pet's sick, you can just pick up the phone rather than schlep the dog 17 blocks to nowhere. More on Fido-friendly company. Stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Stop worrying about the Fed or the foreboding action in the bond market. Ask yourself, am I too negative? Because like I told you last night, you probably are, which is why we're spending all week going after household name stocks to see where they're trading versus two years ago. In almost every case, the underlying companies are much better off. Their stock prices, not so much. I'm conducting this exercise because too many investors have forgotten that stocks represent actual companies, not pieces on the Fed's vast chessboard. Many of these companies can control their own destiny. They're not purely hostage to the business cycle or the endless ETFs that mix apples, rotten and good, and one worthless but aggressively used basket. Sure, you can say, of course, stocks are worth less now. The Fed's tightening, and when that happens, it's all bad. But I think the Fed's almost done fighting at this point, and we can't afford to miss what these companies have done for themselves just because the bond market says it doesn't matter. The truth is, Wall Street often prices stock incorrectly based on gigantic macroeconomic concerns that could be overthrown practically overnight by the micro, by what the companies do, for heaven's sake. I want to show you how that happens with another batch of well-known Dow stocks. Why don't we start with the most iconic one? Let's start with Disney. Disney's a stock that's come crashing down from $188 to $100, pit stop, by the way, at $89, in the last two years. Even as its revenues have grown from $67 billion in 2021 to an expected $90 billion this year, and its earnings have nearly doubled in that period. Of course, you could argue that comparisons are easier or even odious. I know a lot of that strength two years ago came from the fanfare of Disney+. Plus. I'm asking you to look at this one from a totally different prism, though. Disney's like a vault of intellectual property with the best IP in the world. There's unparalleled amusement parks. Let me know when Netflix has built a space mountain of its own. But it also has local network television, which right now is regarded as being an albatross, 80% of ESPN, which suddenly everybody hates, but I'm sorry, it's live, and a tremendous library of content. What did Disney do wrong here? It committed the cardinal sin of wrecking its balance sheet with an insanely expensive acquisition. That was that Fox deal. But you know what? Everybody else in the industry was doing the same thing. Now Disney's brought back Bob Iger, the once and future CEO, who recognizes that the business hinges on hit movies that turn into rides and merchandising revenue. What this company needs more than ever is peace and quiet and no drama as they find a successor 
to Bob Iger. The previous CEO angered so many people that there was just bad will all over the place. There were wells that were spoiled everywhere. But with the world going back to normal, Bob Iger working to calm things down, I think it's absurd that this stock is down nearly 90 bucks from where it traded two years ago. Despite having better management and a better outlook, it simply makes no sense at all to me, especially now that Iger's gotten aggressive about doing cost cuts. How about this one, American Express? This is one of the most misunderstood companies on the planet. We've heard so much garbage about financial tech over the years, with so many analysts pushing junk IPOs that just weren't any good at all. Yet somehow, American Express is only up less than 15 bucks where it was two years ago, even as the competition from those bogus fintech IPOs has now withered away. American Express had $52 billion in revenues in the most recent fiscal year, up $42 billion from uh, the year before. That's a nice big gain. While the earnings per share haven't exploded yet, its card membership base sure has, and that's what matters. Uh, you know what? i got to tell you, the demographic of this card is exactly the opposite of what you would think. CEO Steve Squeary has reminded me over and over again, most of the new customers are coming from millennials and Generation Z. That's right. About 60% of the new cardholders are from these cohorts. I regard these people as fine, fine print readers is what I call them, especially the millennials. They recognize a bargain when they see one when it comes to customer service or return policy, centurion clubs, coveted points, all American staples. These perks turn out to be far more important than whatever Square or PayPal or all the others brought to the party. If you affirm. How's the affirm points? You ever use those at Bergdorf? Not that I know of, Lisa. If you buy American Express here, you're getting the stock at less than 15 times forward earnings. I think that's an extraordinary deal for one of the best franchises out there, and it's a story one. It's a franchise that's inextricably linked to the strongest part of our economy right now, travel and leisure. Okay, then there's a real stinker, Honeywell, where the action makes me think that Wall Street needs a remedial math lesson. I'll provide it right now. Can someone help me understand how a company that's grown its earnings from just $8 in 2021 to an expected $9.07 per share this year can see its stock fall from $227 down to $192 over the same period? Well, that's Honeywell for you. Now, you might think that its business must have deteriorated despite that earnings piece. You would be completely wrong. Honeywell's biggest business, Aerospace, with 33% of the pie, is as strong as it's been in any recent memory. The cockpit sold theirs, by the way. Performance materials, 30% of their sales, are used in all sorts of settings. But I think that the ones I like are the ones that help decarbonize things. That includes carbon capture and hydrogen power. The rest of the business comes from safety. Oh, yeah, people are going to really cut back on safety now. And building work, chiefly climate controls. No one ever rolls back safety standards, which, by the way, I have to remind you, unlike me, never takes a vacation. I actually took a day off this year. Environmental standards that require more energy-efficient air conditioners and boilers, that's Honeywell. Yeah, okay, new CEO, right, Vimal Kapoor, coming in, internal candidate. I know that he, like Darius Demchik before him, has every right to reshuffle the deck. But if you're selling this one out of fear, you're making a mistake. Next Dow stock, Salesforce. All right, here's a company that's widely regarded as fat and happy without the discipline. No Wagovi, nothing. To efficiently absorb a couple of large acquisitions, fire tons of people, and buy back stocks. All things Wall Street wanted to see from big cap tech companies. Two years ago, Salesforce traded 231. Since then, they've gotten religion on efficiency. They're cutting costs, firing underperforming workers, buying back cops of stock, crushing the earnings estimates, wiping out the competition. In two years, the free cash flow has gone from 5.3 billion to an expected 
expected 7.4 billion this year, and that's the right metric, by the way. Yet the stock, what's it done? It's come down to just under $189. Even as I've never seen CEO Mark Benioff more engaged than he is right now, and I've done it for about 20 years. If you figure that out, let me know. Let me know. Right, or better yet, why don't you just go buy some? Finally, there's a conundrum of another stock. Oh, this is one that is so hated that I got to tell you, it's driving me crazy. And the stock is Caterpillar, okay? This is a stock that was at $230 a couple years ago when it was nowhere near as good as the company is now. And it did a nice move today. For several years now, Caterpillar's moved heaven and earth, and that's not a cliche, you know, earth mover, moved heaven and earth to diversify away from any one particular industry. Not commercial real estate, not road building, not oil and gas, not minerals, not mining, not coal, or even building in China. It's diversified. Cat's now got a terrific mosaic of businesses. Yet all I ever hear about is how the company's going to get crushed by its commercial real estate exposure. Nah, 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 nah. Even as I think it's simply not big enough to move the needle. Here's what I do know. Our government's about to spend hundreds of billions of dollars on infrastructure, roads, bridges, tunnels, even semiconductor infrastructure. At the same time, the Chinese economy is roaring back, as are minerals and oil. Against that backdrop, the smart money says you're supposed to sell Caterpillar? Are these people nuts? They know nothing! Our governments are going to buy cats, not Komatsus. That Komatsu thing doesn't go over as well. Enough already. All right, I've watched the stock get hammered, and I marvel at the vicious, short-sighted nature of the sellers. Cat could announce a severe shortfall right here, and I don't even know if we return to 209, where it was just the other day. Bottom line, write these down, will you? Disney, American Express, Honeywell, Salesforce, Caterpillar. Five companies with stocks that have fallen hard, while their underlying business have done nothing but get better in the last two years. If you can't see the appeal here, I think you're too negative about these stocks and about the market in general. Mad Money's back into the break. Coming up, will earnings season be the catalyst to push the averages north? Kramer checks the charts next. had this kind of weird situation. After spending most of last year lost in the wilderness, tech, of all sectors, has started to lead us higher again. And that's been the tale of the tape in recent weeks, and it's a good story. Leader in exile returns to take us to higher prices. But can tech keep leading the way, or will it get ousted again, as so often it does? I'm generally positive on larger tech companies with good managements and deep pockets. I'm also feeling much better about many of the semiconductor stocks here. But sometimes I like to take a step back and consider the charts, get a read on the near-term future, especially now that we're heading into earnings season, which can be a hard time to predict. Long-term, I'm convinced that artificial intelligence is here to stay, which is true for the likes of Kramer Fave and NVIDIA. Stock was down a little bit today, but it's been so strong. Remember, I say own it, don't trade it. Most importantly, though, tech's been able to come back to life because money managers are increasingly convinced that the Federal Reserve might be nearly done raising interest rates. We know aggressive rate hikes are catastrophic for growth stocks. That's the story of last year. And most tech stocks are growth stocks. But if, like me, you believe the Fed will be able to back off, especially now that the mini banking crisis has caused the financials to get a lot more cautious with the lending, then that makes the whole tech edifice more attractive. So tonight, we're going off the charts with Elba Jessica Inskip. She's a brilliant technician, first woman on the active trader desk at Fidelity before becoming the director of advanced trader strategy at Merrill Self Direct. And now she's the director of education and product at Options Play, one word. But she still consults with all the major brokerage firms in the self directed space. 
you want to take the temperature of tech, you need to watch the NASDAQ 100. That's the index made of the 100 largest non-financial stocks in the NASDAQ composite. We track this with the Invesco QQQ Trust ETF. And you often hear the fast money, everybody, anyone who speaks, they always say the QQQ. This is what we're talking about. It's the QQQ. And here it is. Check out the QQQ's weekly chart. Inskip, Inskip points out that this tech-heavy index has recently turned bullish for the first time since January of last year, when the tech bull market, bear market, morphed into a bull, uh, bear, bull market, morphed into a bear market, and it really got its claws into us. More important, she likes to do a moving average analysis here. The 13-week moving average is in purple. Now, these are really important. We're going to go over every one of them. The 26 moving average, 26 week, is green. Okay. The 40 week is in red, and the uh, 200 week, which is, you know, it's a very long time, which is blue. Okay, Inskip says you've got to watch the slope of these lines, along with their positions relative to each other and the underlying security, because they can tell you a lot about the way things are trending. Now, the 200 week moving average, okay, this is the really long one, okay, gives you a big picture perspective on the NASDAQ 100 overall direction. Uh, currently, it's trending upwards, even as it's well below the price of the actual QQQ. So you take a look at the blue. And it's going up. Okay, this said for a long time that it wasn't doing it. Uh, QQQ's trading cycle has turned bullish for the first time since January of 2022. To gain insight into QQQ's performance, we analyze a weekly chart with 13, 26, 40, and 200 weekly moving averages to assessing the slope of these lines and the position of the underlying security relative to the average. Remember, 200 weeks is nearly four years. So this is an extremely long-term moving average. As for... The 13-week, 26-week, and 40-week moving average, Inskip watches them because they represent the trading cycle over one quarter, two quarters, and then three quarters, respectively. Given that Wall Street judges everything on a quarterly basis, these moving averages can show you a nice rolling quarterly view. And what do we have? According to Inskip, an index like the NASDAQ 100 can only form a solid base when it consistently closes above each of these quarterly moving averages, with all three lines exhibiting an uptrend, upward trend. And that's exactly what we've got right here. The NASDAQ 100 broke out above all three of these moving averages by the week of January 23rd, and it's continued running higher ever since. So imagine this. You have this giant downturn. It goes on and on. This is right here is the bear market. Okay. then I've been saying that right down here, we have been trying to get started in a bull market. This pretty much confirms that I'm right. So now what we're going to do is we're going to zoom in and look at the weekly chart of the NASDAQ 100 going back to 2018. You can see all these quarterly moving averages correspond to in swing action. This points out that when the index breaks out above all of the quarterly moving averages, you tend to get phenomenal runs. And we had an early, in early 2019, and again after the COVID bottom, the spring of 2020, we got a similar breakthrough a few months ago, and she thinks it's a very big deal. But what about tech's current position relative to the rest of the market? Okay, I want you to take a look at this daily chart comparing the action in the QQQ to the action in the S&P 500. This chart is the ratio of the two. When it's going up, the NASDAQ 100 is outperforming the S&P, and when it's going down, the NASDAQ 100 is underperforming. You can see so far this year, we have had a ton of outperformance, in part because preferences have changed on Wall Street. However, Inskip notes that tech's outperformance has somewhat slowed recently. That's the slowing. 
So uh, she thinks it might not come back until earnings season's in full swing, assuming earnings season goes well for enough tech names. I am in agreement with this. Finally, let's circle back to the original weekly chart of the QQQ. Putting it all together, Inscript says we've got a solid base forming here as the QQQ consistently closes above the one quarter, two quarter, and three quarter moving averages. So you know we're talking about these. Okay, so it's closing above those. It's where we are. It's crossing all those, all right? Um, and, and these are all sloping higher. That's a bullish sign. At the same time, the NASDAQ 100 keeps finding a nice floor of support around the January 30th high of 313. Okay, there's the floor of support. It's right above it there. With the ceiling of resistance currently capping it at around 320. We've got to beat that one, right? And above that, another one at 332. That's going to be related to those. And then, wow. I mean, because remember, 332 was set by the high in last August. If the Nasdaq 100 can break through that August high, making a higher one, that would prove to Inskip that this uptrend's got staying power and tech is ready to roar even further. But first, it needs to jump those two hurdles. Inskip wouldn't be surprised if we get the catalyst needed to make that happen sometime in the early season. I think there's a very good chance that she's right. Remember, Wall Street has changed its tune on tech. These companies are now getting the benefit of the doubt. Look at that explosive run in Nasdaq 100. A member Micron just yesterday after we learned their arch rival Samsung will finally stop churning out tons of memory chips at well below the cost of production, destroying everybody's profit. Nobody cares that the near-term numbers are lousy because we finally see signs of a turn in the not-too-distant future. So we'd be buying stocks like Micron right here, even though they've not bottom in terms of earnings. We're trying to anticipate the bottom. Here's the bottom line. The charts interpreted by Jessica Inskip are looking pretty darn bullish for the tech-heavy Nasdaq 100, although she wants to see one last breakout above 332, up about 16 points from here, before she's willing to go all in. Me? I am all in. Let's take phone calls. Jerry in Missouri. Jerry. Brent, I want to thank you and Jeff for all you do for us. Oh, thank you. Jeff is working pretty We have been really turned between that, that morning meeting, the home stretch, with peace on Sunday. My wife's starting to get real angry at me, but I'll do anything for the club, and you know that. How can I help? Okay, the regional banks, the good regional banks, have really been hit hard. The bank I'm invested in isn't Silicon Valley Bank, and it's a good, profitable business. How long do you think it'll take for the good banks to rebound to their previous levels? In particular, I'm talking about Huntington Bank. Okay, it's a very complicated issue because I've got a tip straight. Thank you for the fine comments about the club. Here's the issue. Um, what's happened is the price earnings multiples have shrunk to where they're basically in line with the multi-center, with the, you know, the big money center banks. So there are a lot of people who are starting to feel, you know what, that's the new posture. I happen to think that the yield's good. Mr. Steiner's doing a great job as, this, as the CEO. I think you get two more points, maybe three points, but probably not more than that until the other banks lift. You're being held hostage now by all the money centers, because that's how the market views the regionals. It's the first time that's happened, so I understand why you might be frustrated, but that's the truth. Let's go to Tommy in New Jersey. Tommy. Hey, Jimmy. Hi, it's Tommy. Hey, what's your favorite hey. sound? My favorite sound? <laughs> your sound favorite of, sound. Of, uh, the, the sound of fly goes fly? I don't know. The sound uh, of a register? Man, all those are good. It's money, to what I'm told. Anyway, what's your thoughts but, on uh, this big run on Lockheed Martin? I think it's worth it. Jim Tatelet is real. Jim Tatelet's real. We have, we're way underfunded when it comes to trying to be able to defend ourselves and our allies. And Lockheed Martin is integral. And Jim, I know you're listening. It's time to come back on the show. The charts as interpreted by Jessica Inskip, look at this, are looking pretty bullish. Look at this turn. 
This is the turn that I've been telling you about. She wants to see it break out to here. I say it's already broken out. Much more money, including tech at the vet. I'm checking in with a private player, Poth, to hear how the telemedicine company for pets is disrupting the space because it is National Pet Day after all. Then some are saying that it might be time to trim some Pioneer Natural with the Travel Trust. They're wrong. And then all your calls, rapid fire, in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. For years of Mad Money, we've been talking about the humanization of pets, the way people increasingly treat their pets as members of the family, which simply means spending a lot more money on their food and health care. But pet health care is getting increasingly expensive. Sure, people are often willing to spend whatever it takes to keep their cats and dogs in good shape. But if there's a way to cut down on your vet bills, who wouldn't want that? And that's why tonight on National Pet Day, a day that's very important to my stray rescue dogs, Bob Marley and Ragu, I wanted to highlight a privately held company called Pawp, P-A-W-P. That's a telehealth service for pets at low fixed prices. You pay $99 per year for unlimited access to veterinarians via video or text message. For an extra $14 a month, they'll give you insurance that covers up to $3,000 for life-threatening emergency vet visits. In many cases, all of this is much cheaper than going to the vet in person, of course, much more convenient. Although telehealth obviously has its limitations when you're dealing with animals that can't speak for themselves. Uh, at least mine can't, but they have bloody murder if something hurts them, or they whimper like, well, if their dog's in distress. Still, I think this one's worth a closer look. So let's check in with a private company and speak to Mark Atier. He is the founder and CEO of Pop. Mr. T, welcome to Mad Money. It's good to be here. Okay, so tell me the advantages, because right now I know if we have a problem with our dog, let's say it's the middle of the night, it, it, we have to walk about 10 blocks at 3 a.m., and the fees will be very expensive because the person there doesn't want to be there that late anyway. So give me the value proposition versus what I think is something that I just described that's quite typical for pet owners. Look, Jim, I wake up every morning thinking, how can I give millions of Americans access to quality pet care? Uh, in a world where you can press a button, get food delivered to a place, you can even press a button and have someone literally come in and fill up your fridge with groceries. Right. We believe that it just makes sense that in a country where we have 180 million pets between dogs and cats, folks can press a button and be able to talk to a veterinarian. Going to the clinic is it's expensive, it's cumbersome, it even causes anxiety to pet owners and pets themselves. So if we're able to leverage technology and, and allow people to press button, have access to professionals, why not do it? And it's about time that someone does it. So do you think it's one of the situations where what would happen is you would call uh, the dog can't speak for themselves, obviously, but you would describe what's wrong. Hey, my dog just ate a raisinette. What do I do? Or, or my dog has something uh, that is that they may have swallowed that they shouldn't have. That uh, doctor can prescribe or can tell you what to do versus going there and just hearing the exact same information, but costing you a lot more money. Yeah. Very frankly, what we receive is, is, you know, parents who are, you know, pet parents themselves who are just extremely anxious. Their, their dog is going through an episode. They're either crying, they just ate raisins, no raisins, by the way, no right. chocolates for dogs. Uh, and we're just here uh, as a vet professional, just providing them with the care that they need. Very often, it's something as simple as, look, let's just 
watch uh, how your dog behaves over the next two hours, few hours, we're giving them peace of mind. And it's right. something that is deeply needed, especially when an incident happens at 3 a.m. in the morning. Can you prescribe? We could in certain states. Uh, there okay. are certain states that allow it. Uh, we're following the regulations and rules there. Of course. We believe that there are certain medications that are should be given and should be administered or at least prescribed via telemedicine for certain cases, and we want to be at the forefront of that. Now, how about uh, some sort of insurance program? Since I think that people are always shocked at how much they end up having to pay uh, for something that they may think is actually a bit of a ripoff, but of course, because it's their, their a pet, they'll do anything. Correct. I mean, pet insurance, traditional pet insurance hasn't worked. Penetration is no. about 2 to 3%. It's extremely expensive, cost prohibitive. It's also extremely complicated. So what we did at POP is we came up with a financial product called the emergency fund. It's simple. It works. You pay $14 a month. In the event of a life-threatening emergency, we would inc- we would encourage you to rush to a vet clinic, and we will end up paying up up to three thousand dollars in exchange for obviously now, the fourteen. Do you have like pay. a list of, of, of pet clinics in my neighborhood or that we are that are everyone. prescribers? We work really? with everyone, but we're more than happy to to handhold you and, and and walk you through what we call our preferred network of vets. Now, I mean, I uh, we for a while belonged to one. Uh, we, you know, we had a, a tractor supply where there was a vet. Uh, I know that they're trying to bring vets into uh, to, to Petco. Um, how does this work with them? Is this just a, maybe they should have this policy? Look, I believe pet care is just part of taking care of a pet. And what we're seeing is, you mentioned a few, a few retailers, but what we're seeing is most of the retailers in the country are understanding that pets are family. And yes, like allowing folks to buy pet products is just half the problem. There's the whole suite of services that, that pet parents are looking for, like pet care. And we're very excited uh, to be working and, and partnering with some of the biggest chains in the country where we're able to give millions of Americans free access or, you know, very cheap access to pet care. And it's been it's been working and resonating extremely well with well, Americans. I, I think they ought to do it. I, I think that a lot of people feel that after a certain hour, look, it's not like you come home and all day your pet's been sick and you're just going to run the pet to the vet. It's the opposite. You're having dinner. You're going to sleep. The pet's not feeling well. It's the worst possible hour. My wife is carrying the dog eight blocks, gets there. It could have just been easily told on the phone what to do. And this uh, this obviates that makes everybody's life better, including the pets. A hundred percent. I do believe that this is this is a service that should have existed years ago. I'm glad that it's becoming more and more the norm. I'm glad that some of the you know biggest you know brands in the country are starting to understand that pets are family. And yes, if you're doing and you're building with your with your with your user base and and allowing them and giving them tons of services giving them a pet benefit just makes sense. Well, I think a lot of us who have discovered how easy it is to use telehealth would completely agree with you. Maybe five years ago, no, because we never used telehealth ourselves. But now that we have, it makes a great deal of sense. I want to thank Paul, PAWP founder and CEO, Mark Atahi, uh, Mark Atahi, a, a, uh, well, let's put it this way, it's a great service. I, phone numbers, website, what do they do? Pop.com, P-A-W-P.com. We're on social, but best way to find us is on Pop.com, but also on the App Store, P-A-W-P. Okay. National Pet Day, you just learned something. They have money's back here. Right. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky is the limit. It's a fast-fire lightning round, next. Same as same as the talk. I said, bye bye bye. We just be going to know the cause of the end of the play. So, 
And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski dang top of the lightning round. Crunch might start with Texas, PT in Texas. PT. Hey, Jim. How about a big Jerome McDougal booyah to you, partner? Why the hell not? I agree with that. What's going on? Hey, question about Remax, R-M-A-X. Is it a secret sleeper? No, it's not. As a matter of fact, I, I kind of, even though the multiple's low, it's not low enough. I'd rather be in a bank than those guys. Let's stay away. Let's go to Brett, Missouri. Brett! Yo, what's up, Jim? Uh, given the recent rise in AI technologies and concerns around data privacy, uh, I just want to get your thoughts on Palantir. Um, I tell you, I think Palantir is... Uh, I mean, I want to be very polite about it. I, I think it's kind of a bit of a bluff artist. They're just not my cup of tea. I like the guys. You want cybersecurity. You go to Palo Alto Networks. You go to Nikesh Aurora. I want to go to Jack in Ohio. Please, Jack. Hey, thanks for your help, Jimmy. Of course, Jack. What's hey, happening? Hey, my dividend income exploded last quarter with your help. You said oh, thank a, you. a few weeks ago you'd like to have someone from the company come on the show to talk unless I missed it. Is it okay to add more SPWD, Starwood Property okay. Trust? Barry Sternlich told a tale of two cities. He told about how bad things are, but also about how he's got a lot of dry powder and he's going to make it work. So I'm going to stick with Barry on this, and I'm going to say you can buy the stock, SWDT. The STWT, I'm going to be with Barry. I like Barry. Let's go to Scott in Maryland. Scott. Jim, you are the smartest, the most objective and caring commentator on Wall Street. Uh, only I were. But thank you for that. That's kind. Thank you. I'd like you to revisit this stock, Amazon's major grocery supplier. One year ago, you said I had horse sense owning it. One year later, things have changed. Amazon is punting on Amazon Fresh and squeezing its suppliers at Whole Foods. Now, will a new buyer of United Foods have horse sense? I sold at 43 in February. Bought again when its CEO bought 45,000 shares two weeks ago at 22. What is horn? Uh, look, frankly, I frankly I, I did. I was mystified by that last quarter. I couldn't believe they did that badly. It was it was it was really sad. So I can't go with it. I'm sorry. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the lightning round. The lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, looking for a good catch in the oil patch? Keep that pioneering spirit. Next. We own Pioneer Natural Resources, PXD, the alleged target of a takeover bid from ExxonMobil for the Travel Trust. And some would say it's time to bring the register on part of our position here because the acquisition story smacks more of fiction than fact. There's just one problem. I think you'd have to be an idiot to sell Pioneer right here. Why? Because thanks to Russia, Brazil, Barbian Energy, the best oil and gas analyst there is, we know the total cost structure for Pioneer. And based on those numbers, you can see why management would hold out at least for 300 bucks per share from Exxon. In the end, Pioneer is one of the most profitable oil companies in the world. And I think it's worth more to shareholders independently than it would be to acquire in this market, unless that acquirer is willing to pay enough to cover all the dividend payments that Pioneer will be spooning to the shareholder base for many years to come. To put it in perspective, Pioneer's total cost of a barrel of oil from the Permian Basin is less than $22 a barrel. 
oils at 80. Compare that to the other outlets we talk about all the time. Occidental, Warren Buffett's favorite, $33 to get a barrel from the same region. Conoco, 29. Marathon, 29. All much higher than, the Pine, than Pioneer. At the same time, these guys pay out a ridiculously generous and variable dividend. Even if that's something willing to offer a 40% premium that's only a few years of dividend payments. No wonder Pioneer wants to hold out for more money if indeed there is a deal. They're brimming with oil and with cash. If you look at the oils, only Diamondback produces oil more cheaply than Pioneer, although I'm not sure the quality is good. When I read the piece about Exxon kicking the Pioneer tires this weekend, I didn't like the way it was written at all. It was so tentative that the whole thing seemed just, I don't know, fictional. Midway through the article, a second bidder emerges. I mean, seemingly crazy and intellectually lazy writing, if I don't say so myself. But here's what I do know. The Permian Basin is a tremendous place to drill for oil, and Pioneer dominates this portion of the Permian. If Exxon really wants to build a business there, it'll have to pay a fortune for that acreage, probably spending much more than it would cost just to acquire a good company. Then again, Exxon once paid more than $30 billion for XTO Energy right at the top of the natural gas market, so it's not like they have a history of making the best financial decisions. And I think that may they actually remember that every minute when they think about a takeover. I've always admitted that I like Scott Sheffield. He's the CEO of Pioneer because he does what's best for the shareholders. In this case, it would be the best to hold out. Pioneer makes so much money per barrel at these levels that I, it would be a crime for them to cash out for anything less than $300. 80 points from here. That's why I definitely don't want to sell the stock into strength. In fact, I'd be a buyer, even up here. If Exxon doesn't come back and instead buy some other operator in the Permian, Pioneer stock's going to rally anyway. You can sell it dead. But with a 10% yield and a stock selling for less than 10 times earnings, what is not to like about PXD? There's no doubt that we need some consolidation in the oil patch. There are too many companies. It costs too much to drill, all the exciting, the drilling. But the next time Pioneer pulls back by even a small amount, I recommend that you should be buying it as aggressively as possible. I know I want my trust to do so, which, of course, you can follow along by joining the CNBC Investing Club. And we're going to do it. Look, few players know oil as well as Exxon does. I don't think we'll actually be willing to pay up enough for Pioneer. But the fact that they want to buy something in Pioneer's backyard, that's a huge endorsement. I like to say there's always more markets on my promise if I just feel right here made money. I'm Jim Kramer, and I will see you tomorrow. Last call starts now.